0: So the year began with a banking crisis and has been marked with layoffs and restructurings, we've managed to avoid a feared recession. It's been a big year for new drug approvals, M&A activity has been brisk, and biotech stocks have rallied in recent weeks, pushing the widely watched S&P Biotech Index into positive territory for the year. We continue our annual tradition to look back across the year in biotech and uh, head to J.P. Morgan and beyond with Adam Feuerstein, Polk Award-winning journalist and senior biotech writer for STAT. We spoke to Foresteen about the biotech news that shaped 2023, the year's best and worst CEOs, and what's ahead in 2024.
1: Adam, thanks for joining us. Danny Levine, good to be here, as always, year after year, we do this call, or this call, well, I guess it is a call, but we do this interview about the year that was,
0: (laughs) and the year that will be. We're going to discuss the good, bad, and ugly of 2023, what's ahead in the new year, and the year appears to be ending on strength. Some big approvals, including the first CRISPR gene editing therapy, the XBI looks like it's going to close in positive territory with a modest year-over-year gain. And and the Fed is expecting to cut interest rates three times in the new year, setting the stage for an upbeat JP Morgan meeting. Right, it's Hard to remember, but early in 2023, there was a lot of hand-wringing over the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and fears about it having a devastating effect on biotech and triggering a much broader banking crisis. What kind of year was 2023?
1: You know, it's interesting, right? If you look at the, if you just look at the chart of the XBI, which is, you know, the you know the the stock index that, the biotech stock index that we all sort of look at the most, it really is kind of crazy up and down. You know, it was sort of went up in the beginning of the year, it went down, it went up, like sort of the middle of the year, it looked like we were rallying, and then there was this long decline, and it looked like the world was ending into the fall. And then, and now we've had this, like this furious rally, like you mentioned uh you know towards the end of the year uh and so it looks like you know it's not like a great year necessarily but certainly i think i think the index was down like 20 something percent uh you know kind of in october and now it looks like it's going to close up just you know just a little bit in 3% or so uh so yeah it's been a kind of an up and down crazy year
0: while there's reason to be upbeat about 2024 we still saw a lot of layoffs in 2023 and restructurings within the biotech sector. We've now got hundreds of biotech microcaps with less than a year of runway based on their cash burns. Some of these companies do have promising technology. How do you see this shaking out?
1: Yeah, it it is one of the more unfortunate sides uh of this year for biotech. And I'm talking, you know, mostly from the from the employee standpoint, right? I think there are a lot of people out there who, you know, who have been laid off, Uh, companies have been restructuring, you know, cutting programs, having to, as you said, having to, you know, cut expenses because Mm -hmm. they, they look ahead and they see, you know, the cash that they have raised running out and they've had to figure out how to, how to make that last longer. So, you know, uh, I think the workforce within biotech has suffered and, and you hear, you know, we've done some stories about, you know, people who have been looking for jobs. And, you know, if you think back a few years ago, it was very much kind of a, you know it was uh you know people could maybe you know just sort of take their pick of jobs and there was offers all over the table and it was really easy to find something uh that's not the case now right now i think there's lots of people you know there's maybe dozens or so of people applying or or competing for every job out there so it's that's one of the unfortunate sides but i i think on the other side when you th- when you sort of step back from a macro perspective you know i i've been one who who has said you know there are just there're just too many uh, there's too many biotech companies out there uh you know when you know when the spigot when the money spigot was kind of turned on full blast you had lots of companies being funded it was really easy to raise capital and so you had all these companies uh coming to the market you know whether first as private companies and then maybe going public and um that maybe, you know, on second thought probably should not have been companies unto themselves. And, and now we're sort of, so, so we're seeing sort of the downside of that, like you mentioned, we're seeing a lot of structure, you know, we're seeing a lot of restructuring these companies uh, going out of business, or maybe they're reverse merging into other companies. Um, you know, it ha- I think we'll, we'll probably see more of that next year, Danny. Uh, you know, I think we're sort of on the, maybe on the sort of trailing edge of that. And um Maybe, you know, it It will depend on sort of how much uh, the kind of the money spigot turns back on in 2024, as you mentioned, uh, from a macro perspective, you know, the Fed signaling that they're going to be cutting interest rates in 2024 uh, does signal, you know, maybe a loosening uh, of the financial constraints that we've seen uh, that, you know, that have sort of played a, a big part in in this year. And so maybe money will be easier to find in 2024. But, um, you know, I don't know. There'll The they'll companies out there that are still hurting for cash, uh, we'll see what happens to them.
0: Biotech executives generally don't become part of the popular imagination. This year, we saw Roy Vant, Sciences founder Vivek Ramaswamy, rise to national prominence. What do you make of Ramaswamy <laughs> and his move from biotech to politics?
1: Oh, Danny, he wanted to go there. <laughs> um i don't know i you know i try not to get into the politics stuff just because i don't know i'm it's boring um you know I, I i mean i guess what i would say about him is you know i think he's you know his platform uh is kind of totally divorced from his biotech experience i mean you know he sort of you know when you see him described places or in, you know, in print or stories, you know, he's described as kind of an entrepreneur or a biotech entrepreneur. I I don't know if, if sort of 90% of the people out there know what that means. Um, You know, obviously we do because we live and breathe this stuff. Um, But I don't know, I don't, you know, I don't think he's going to get the nomination. (laughs) 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 Uh, You know, uh, he's trying hard, he's trying hard, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe he's vying, maybe he's really vying for a cabinet
0: Oh, there so, there's always NIH right
1: <laughs> you know I mean I've known him for a long time uh and so uh some of the things that come out of his mouth these days does certainly do surprise me um but yeah we'll we'll leave it at that
0: you did have praise for Roy Vance CEO Matt Glein who was yeah. a runner-up in your annual best CEO this year Roy Vant had a blockbuster deal with Roche, which brought Televant and its experimental IBD drug for 7.1 billion dollars. Why Glein? And, and what does the deal mean for Roy Vant?
1: Yeah, so I he was a runner-up in my in my best biopharma CEO uh, column uh, that I put out actually this week. Uh, yeah, and you know he's just just a great deal, right? I mean, they had managed to uh, they'd managed to get this uh, this drug from out of Pfizer. Uh, you know, paid very little for it, like fifty million dollars, and then and then spun it out and um sold it uh for five billion dollars. So that's you know in in basically a year. So that's a pretty good return on investment. Um, you know, I've you know, I think you know we talk about Vivek and you know whether you know how tied Vivek is to Roy Vint these days. I think you know Matt Glein has tried to sort of make the point that you know yet yeah, yes. Uh, Vivek owns, you know, he, he owns stock, obviously he's still owns stock in Royvan, but he's not involved operationally in the company. So, you know, they're sort of independent from that, but yeah, he's done a, he did a really nice job this year. Uh, and so he was a, a runner up on my best biopharma list. Uh, the winner was, you know, it was pretty easy choice to make this year was David Ricks of Eli Lilly, just, you know, glip one, right. Obesity. I mean, it's like kind of the only thing that we were talking about this year, uh, and you know, Lilly. Between that and 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 there, you know, the work that they've done there, and and then obviously Alzheimer's as well. Uh, it was a phenomenal year for Eli Lilly and so David Rick's. You know, hands down, it was pretty easy to name him best Buy or Pharmacy, yeah.
0: It was also a good year for new drug approvals. There were fifty five and counting. As we're about a week away from the end of the year, that's far more than the thirty seven approved in twenty twenty three. On the biologic side, we saw the approval of two cell therapies for sickle cell disease, Vertex's Casjevi, and the first CRISPR gene editing therapy, and Bluebird Bio's Lifgenia. Let's start with Casjevi, the, the first CRISPR therapy. How significant a moment is this?
1: Uh, big, huge. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, towards the end of the year writing about that, both myself and other, other stat reporters here. Uh, you know, it's certainly groundbreaking, right? I, as you mentioned, the first medicine based on the CRISPR gene, gene editing technology to, to win approval uh, in a in an inherited disease, I think, it really just sort of usher in this new era of genetic medicines, you know, based on CRISPR and and all of its variants. Right, we have uh, lots of companies out there who are who are sort of looking at different vert, different types of CRISPRing. Uh You know, you've got different kinds of gene editing that are that are being explored for, for diseases. So, you know, it was definitely a a one of those you know one of those are sort of really landmark uh approvals that you can sort of look at and and you know maybe a turning point now I think you know the open question is just how commercially successful uh Caschevi will be uh just you know the difficulties of 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 making it and of, of really of administering it and preparing uh people with sickle cell for for this this uh you know this treatment um that will be, that's a challenge. And we'll, so, uh, you know, one of the things I, I am eager to see in 2024 is just to see what kind of uptake um, that has, you know, Cash Chevy has with, within the sickle cell community.
0: Well, let, let's talk about Bluebird. It, it had its worst trading day in its history on the news as it fell more than 40% on the approval. The approval came with a black box warning and the company priced its therapy at $3.1 well above the 2.2 million for Casgevy, right? What went wrong for Bluebird, and what's ahead for the company from here?
1: Um, I think with Bluebird, you know, again, uh, you know, all kudos to them for getting Lifgenia, there. Again, their gene therapy for sickle cell approved. You know, uh, and if you sort of step back, I mean, they have now have three gene therapies approved. Uh, you know, which is pretty remarkable if you think about. It. That's that's quite an achievement. Uh, it's you know it's not easy to get these things approved, uh, you know. And again, the question becomes, you know, can they? A can they compete against Vertex and CRISPR? Uh, you know, in this in the sickle cell market, uh, and you know they're sort of handicapped by the weak balance sheet, the weak financial uh, position of the company, you know, which is kind of a legacy thing that they've had to deal with ever since they sort of split off into two companies. You know, the original Bluebird. Was was doing cancer CAR T and gene therapy, and the, you know those two companies split, and so then sort of the gene therapy focused company, which remains Bluebird, you know, sort of started that life as kind of a weakened company from a financial standpoint, and they and they have um, they've been it's been difficult for them to raise money, and uh, as you mentioned, they they priced Lifgenia higher, uh, just under a million dollars more than Vertex's. I think that was. You know, that was a misjudgment on their point. I think they they probably assumed or thought that, you know, Vertex, which is not actually known for discounting any of their drugs uh, and that, you know, company that's sort of known for being aggressive with the pricing of their cystic fibrosis drugs, maybe Bluebird thought that Vertex would do the same uh, with Cashevi, but they did not. Uh, so, you know, that sort of out of the bat, uh, right off the sort of bat, that that was a problem. But I think the bigger problem is just, you know, can Bluebird can Bluebird sort of generate revenue and and make uh Liv Jenny into a profitable business before their cash runs out? And I think there is significant concerns about that, which is kind of why the company has has suffered a little bit from from a stock price perspective. You know, on what you know should have been obviously very good news, right? Getting getting this gene therapy approved.
0: Well, they just did raise, uh, I think, about one hundred and twenty million. This they week. did.
1: Yeah. And, but again, I mean, you know, they raised, they did, they raised a bunch of money, $125 million, um, but at a price about, you know, kind of, you know, the stock price went down about 50% from when they announced that deal. Um, They were doing that deal. So, which kind of just shows you how they have no leverage in the market, right? I mean, everybody knows that they're desperate to raise money. So, they had to raise money at a significant discount. And that just kind of shows you- And it was
0: less than they had-
1: Sorted. Yeah. And right. I think they were looking to raise 150 and they raised 125. So again, it just shows you, you know, the market uh, kind of knows that investors know that, that these guys needed money, desperately needed money. So uh, the terms were not great. A-,
0: a moment ago, you were talking about David Ricks and Eli Lilly. Well, Gove won approval in 2021, but the excitement over GLP-1 agonist appears to be growing. What are we learning about these drugs? And are we going to start putting them in the water supply? (laughs) Man, they do everything. Yeah. (laughs) What's 2024 looking like for GLP-1 drugs?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, ZepBound, which is, you know, Lily's latest was just approved right towards the end of the year. And, you know, now we're sort of waiting to see, um, you know, oral, you know, whether, you know, whether the successful development of an oral, you know, these are all injectable right now. And so the oral uh, versions and, and what those look like, uh, and then like, yeah, I mean, other, uh, you know, are we going to see these things expand into sort of other, um, I don't want to call them diseases. Cause it's like, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, I mean, it's obesity disease, I guess, you know, but, uh, into other areas, you're know, like, you know, whether it's sort of addiction or, you know, you're seeing all these uh, stories and reports and, and studies saying that these drugs sort of modify other behaviors. And so, um, I think it's, uh, there's an insatiable interest and demand, uh, for these drugs, these Glip one drugs and, and some of the other sort of related compounds that, that hit other receptors. Um, you know, at some point, and, and maybe it's next year where we're going to start sort of, it'll be interesting to sort of see how it sort of runs up into, uh, you know, patient access pricing. Um, these drugs are not cheap and, uh, you know, potentially millions and millions of people could be eligible for these GLP-1 drugs and sort of how insurance companies deal with that flood of um, customers, patients who want them and whether access gets restricted or not. I mean, these are all, you know, the. I mean, the numbers are just staggering, right? I mean, people talk about the GLP-1 class being like a hundred billion dollars and that's just a, that's a huge, huge number. So we'll see.
0: In 2023, we also saw the first ALS drug designed to address a specific a mutation approved. Uh, Lequembe, the uh, e Alzheimer's drug, also got a full approval, Right, uh, the first drug to show a reduction in the rate of disease progression and slow cognitive f- and functional decline in people with Alzheimer's disease. Neurodegenerative diseases have been an area of challenge. Where do you see us on the neurodegenerative disease drug development front, and how much tension is there between the FDA and the industry on what it takes for an approval, or I should say patients?
1: Yeah, uh, and let me just say, I have a cold, so that's why I sound the way I do. (laughs) So I'm gonna put that out there, I've got a cold. But when are
0: we gonna cure the common cold?
1: You know, I'd, I'd take something right now. I, again, this is not a co- this is not COVID-related. This is just your run-of-the-mill cold that I have right now, which is why I sound crazy nasal. Um, Sarepta, right? Elevitis, uh, their gene therapy for Duchenne, got a controversial accelerated approval. The confirmatory study came out and uh, it went, failed. Danny, uh, Sarepta just filed those confirmatory data with the FDA and Um, not only does, uh, Sarepta want, uh, their gene therapy to get full approval, but they want to actually expand the label to include, uh, boys with DMD of all ages and whether or not they are are in a wheelchair or not, because it's approved now only for, for boys who are ambulatory. They want a non-ambulatory label as well. Um, you know, they've got a, they seem to have a charmed life when it comes to the FDA. FDA seems to give them anything that they want. Uh, Peter Marks you know, in the CBER division of FDA seems to love Sarepta. Uh, and so we'll see what the FDA does there. You know, I think, I think there is this feeling, maybe it's just confusion. Uh, you know, what you guys know, are like, what does the FDA want? Or, or what, what does it take to get these drugs approved? Um, There does, there, there are people out there who think that like, you know, what's good for Sarepta is not necessarily good for everybody else. And uh, maybe we need more consistency uh, when it comes to sort of regulatory standards for these drugs. Uh, but, uh, it'll be, that's a, that's a review. You know, the Serepta one is, you know, we, we should know, I, I imagine the FDA is going to act on that one relatively quickly. So, you know, first half of the year we'll, you know, we'll certainly have an answer for that. Well,
0: one. not just consistency, but I, I'd argue what people would like to see is, is the FDA honor precedence and yeah. not have this variation between division and division. Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know it's really interesting, and I've been—I have actually given this some thought, thinking about this because I think that is one of the frustrations. I think is that I think people we sort of think of the FDA. Some people think of the FDA as sort of this monolithic agency, right? But it's really not, right? It's like these little fiefdoms, right? And it's—it's it's depending on the division director and 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 how they feel and what their philosophy is, and and so there's not necessarily consistency across the agent, the divisions within the. Within the FDA, and so um, that makes it difficult sometimes to handicap decisions, and it makes probably makes it difficult for companies to sort of know, um, you know, what what what's necessary. What do they need to get a drug approved? Um, you know, some divisions are harder than others. Some are you know some are easy, some are hard, uh, and and that's that's maybe frustrating for people.
0: So. Pfizer was a, a superstar during COVID times. Albert Borla of Pfizer took this year's dishonors as the worst CEO. Yes. Why Borla?
1: You know, it's just a bad year for, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was just a bad, yeah, it was just a bad year for Pfizer. Uh, you know, you mentioned, right. I mean, you know, they had, you know, they they had a great COVID, right? Like, hey, we had a great COVID. Um, you know, obviously between the vaccine and 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 the, the drug to treat COVID that they have, um, Paxovid, you know, they were generating tons of sales and then uh, obviously those fell off. And, uh, you know, it's not like everyone, it's not like that wasn't unexpected, right? Everyone knew that there was going to be a, a COVID drop off in Pfizer sales. Um, that was not a surprise. I think what was a surprise to people was the way that, how badly Pfizer handled it uh, in terms of, in terms of their guidance, uh, you know, they really, you know, the sales just dropped off way more than Pfizer anticipated, at least, you know, what they, what they gave in terms of guidance publicly. And then there were other, you know, they had other clinical setbacks, you know, we talked about GLP-1, you know, they have, they've been having a, a, a hard time, uh, developing their own GLP-1 drug. They had a setback this year with an oral candidate, um, you know, I mentioned that Roy Van Diel, uh which got Mac is on the best list. You know, that was a drug that was in Pfizer's pipeline that they seem to have kind of given away. Uh, so I think for all of those reasons and, you know, the fact that the stock just really kind of tanked this year, it was down like 50%. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just, it, it was sort of the bookend or the sort of the, the the counterparty to David Ricks. It was just like, yeah, Albert Borla, sorry, dude, I like you, but you're the worst biopharma CEO of the year. <laughs>
0: It was uh, an up year for MA. We've seen uh, roughly a doubling in the value of transactions in 2023. One notable presence this year has been the FTC, first delaying the Amgen Horizon deal announced at the end of 2022, and then its actions leading to Sanofi terminating its planned acquisition of Mazon. Illumina is divesting itself of Grail. Does this reflect greater scrutiny and a change in posture for the agency, or do you think they're... Unto
1: themselves, these these different. I mean, it seems to. I mean, I think people are worried about it. Um, that the FTC has become much more activist, and they're taking a really close look, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you know, the Sanofi Maze deal that you mentioned, you know, was not an acquisition, right? It was, you know, what Sanofi was licensed. It was a, that was a licensing deal for May's drug uh, in Pompeii disease that they uh, that they intervened in, and then Sanofi backed off and uh, basically terminated that partnership. I think that got a lot of people's attention cuz you know n- you know you normally think of the FTC stepping in for acquisitions and not for partnerships and obviously partnerships are kind of the lifeblood of biotech right i mean that's what you you know if you're a small biotech company the, you know the way you raise money and um the way you sort of the, you 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 raise money and you sort of advance programs by by licensing them out to larger pharmaceutical companies and so this is seemingly maybe a, a, you know, we don't know if this is going to be sort of a widespread issue, but people are certainly paying attention to it. Uh, you know, like I said, we, you know, we mentioned, you know, we mentioned we, again, on the day we're recording this, Danny, I mean, there was the, the deal this morning for Bristol uh, buying Karuna uh, $14 billion. And, um, you know, there was another deal, Cerevel, which also has, you know, again, in neuroscience space and you know, drugs for schizophrenia that was bought by AbbVie a few weeks ago. Uh, so we'll see whether um, the FTC steps in there, but yeah, I think it's something that's on a lot of people's mind, um, and whether or not you know, I don't know if it's. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's really stopped deals from happening, right? As you mentioned, I mean, this was a great year for M and I mean, it was you know well over a hundred billion dollars in deals this year. I mean, I think what was interesting this year about it is that we you know we often tie the success of the sector to mA activity uh, and fantastic a year but yet you know sort of the broader you know it really didn't have an impact on stocks more broadly right I mean like I said we were down you know the sector was down most of the year uh, badly right so you know that it was sort of divorced those two things were sort of divorced this year which was kind of interesting.
0: So if hotel prices are any indication it should be a, a big year for J.P. Morgan in San Francisco, it, it might be cheaper to sign a lease right now in Union Square
1: for retail space <laughs> and sleep there. Yeah, we should all, we can, we should all stay in abandoned uh, retail storefronts in Union Square. Well, what are you expecting
0: ideas? this year? I mean, it, it seems like we're going to, you know, unlike what I would have said in October, it looks like we're
1: heading for a pretty upbeat conference. So Danny, you tell me. You live over there, right? You live in the, <laughs> the Bay Area. What what am I expecting when I fly into San Francisco in a, in a couple of weeks? I mean, uh, is it a war zone, or am I gonna be okay? You tell me. It's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful. It is a beautiful city. You, you know, I lived there for a long time, so I loved it. Um, but from a con- what am I expecting? I, well, I think you know, given what's happened over the last few weeks, I mean, the mood should be a lot brighter, right? People should be smiling and. Uh, you know, so I think that there'll be some optimism going into JP Morgan this year. I I It's always hard to remember, like, what it was the years prior because it's it's all become such a blur. But, you know, last year was pretty – I think people were pretty downbeat going into it. And then the weather last year was horrible, if you remember. I think it rained every day that we were out there. So um, can you guarantee me some sunshine this year, (laughs) Danny? No guarantees. Yeah. I want nice weather, please. I guarantee fog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got plenty of bad weather at home here in Boston. I don't need that. I need I need warm, nice weather. So come on. Deliver for me. What are
0: you going to be watching at, at JP Morgan this year? And what questions do you hope to answer?
1: Um I think a few things. Like, you know, like I think uh you know, one I'm interested in like I said, I think I'm interested in sort of the business of gene therapy. You know, that's uh, I mentioned before, and kind of how what that looks like um, related to sort of the GLP-1 obesity thing is. You know, we should we should see the first drug approved for MASH at the M now. It used to be Nash with an N, now it's MASH with an M, uh, which is a you know the fatty liver disease. It's a long um, time. Mag- yeah. magical pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, their particular date, I think is in March for the, and that should be the first MASH drug approved. Now, you know, they've been under the gun a little bit because so many people feel like the GLP-1 drugs are, you know, really kind of invading that area, right? People who have fatty liver disease are also obese. And so would you, would you just treat them with a GLP-1? And do we need these drugs which are more directed at the liver? Um, you know, proponents of them say absolutely because you know the, the hallmark of NASH, of mash, I keep mash nash, I get that all mixed up. Um, is you know liver fibrosis is the kind of the the thing that really damages um, is the damaging symptom in these patients, and and so far we don't clip ones don't really impact liver fibrosis so i think that was that's one kind of thing i'm i'm actually gonna i'm gonna sit down with uh, madrigal when i'm out there um i'm kind of curious sort of what they how they see the market and what they're how they're preparing for a drug that drug launch assuming that they get approval
0: and you're actually going to be interviewing peter marks at i am J.P. morgan this is uh, stat at jpm what's next in biotech this is i a, know
1: it's a good one
0: well you've got this is Monday, January eighth, uh, from six PM to nine PM, and people can register on the site. Do you have to be a subscriber? Is this open to everyone? No, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can just register.
1: Uh, yeah, we, you know, we do an event. Uh, we usually do an event uh, at at JP, JP Morgan uh, on the Monday of JP Morgan, and yeah, this year. Thank thanks for the plug, Danny. Appreciate that. Uh, I am uh, I'm doing a one-on-one fireside chat with Peter Marks. As I mentioned, you know the Seber boss. Um, I have called him uh, the most important and most controversial drug regulator in the world. Uh, I think that's an accurate description. And so, yeah, he and I are going to sit on stage and we're going to chat. Uh, it should be a really great conversation. I get to ask him all kinds of questions, and he'll probably not want to answer any of them, any of them. Um, but I will try to. Get, <laughs> I will try to get answers out of him. Uh, and yeah, if you uh, you can go to the stat website and um, find under our events tab and you can sign up for that. Yeah,
0: I've got it open on my page and I'm going to do that when we're done. Uh, and what about the year ahead beyond JP Morgan? What are you going to be watching for and what do you think will be the most compelling stories?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of the things that we've just mentioned, right, uh, you know, from a macro, you know, if we, if we kind of sort of go big picture, right, it's just really, you know, what the Fed ends up doing. Uh, In 2024 and whether, you know, interest rates are lowered and sort of the impact that that will have. I mean, you know, the the sector was so impacted by, by rising interest rates this year that we'll see what, you know, what lower interest rates do and whether that opens the IPO window, for instance, right? Uh, which I know a lot of people sort of look at as a measure of the health in the biotech sector. Um, and so whether that opens up and whether just sort of financing in general opens up, whether companies can can get access to to capital easier uh, this year. And you know, uh, and you know again, I think the sort of the m and a trends that we're seeing here at the end of the year, which is just really active, You know, with, you know, you've always, you know, what is the story you always hear year after year, right? Big pharma needs new drugs to replace revenue lost by, you know, drug, they're old drugs that are going off patent. Uh, And, you know, you're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that at the end of this year. So we'll see how that, um, you know, how that develops and whether that just continues into 2024. I mean, people are like, you know, people are now worried about JP. I'm like, you know, you always want to see big deals announced the week of JP Morgan. And we've had a bunch of these things happen now and the end of December. And so people are like, well, does that mean we're not going to get anything at JP Morgan? So we'll see.
0: Adam Forerstein, Polk award-winning journalist and senior biotech writer for stat. Adam, thanks as always.
1: And a guy with a cold. (laughs) (laughs) Danny is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.